Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and as always, we welcome questions that you may have as you're studying God's Word or specific issues that you're facing that you'd like biblical counsel on. The number locally, again, is 843-525-1859. For those listening through the Internet or in another state, we have a toll-free number, and that number is 877 877- our call letters, WAGP 980. WAGP 980 is the 877 number, or you can email us here directly into the studio at TBL for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call or email, you can remain anonymous. If you want to simply dictate your question, you can. Or if you'd like to go on the air live, we're always happy to take your call in that fashion as well. Good morning, Rick. As always, it's great to be here for the Bible Line. It is indeed, Pastor. And uh, we did get a number of calls and uh, actually emailed questions. And uh, let's go to one of them right now. A listener would like to know, uh, you'd mentioned that uh, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not married. And this listener would like to know, how do we know that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Let me turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for just a moment. Uh, not only does tradition affirm that, but of course, traditions cannot be always uh, solidified as absolute truth. There are some traditions that developed in the church that, of course, were false, that some made authoritative, others that I think are accurate, that coincide with Scripture. Of course, whenever Scripture speaks, then we can speak where the Bible um what the Bible has said with authority. Uh, the apostle says, uh, let the husband fulfill his wife, his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another uh, that you may devote yourselves, except by agreement, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet, I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. How's that? As single. Uh, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So Paul says, listen, uh, I, I wish all men were even as myself am. Why is that? Because as he's later going to express in the chapter that a person who's married has uh, divided interests, and rightly so, because God calls them to that division. He says, for instance, in the same chapter in verse 32, I want you to be free from concern, One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world and how he may please his wife and his interests are divided. 
So when you get married, you have to uh, carry out some different responsibilities that you didn't have prior to your marriage. That's just life. That's reality. Uh, I remember when I was single, uh, I would often leave the house at 630 in the morning, sometimes come home at 11 at night and get up the next morning and do it all over again. Uh, when I was single, I had undistracted uh, devotion to God's work. But when I got married, God gave me new priorities. And it is God's will for most people to be married, as Genesis chapters um, 2 and 3 indicate. But there is an exception to the rule that God gives uh, gifts certain people in a, in a particular way in which they can be single their whole life. It's not a bad thing. And sometimes as married people, we want to marry off folks that shouldn't be married, that God has gifted uh, in terms of their physical body to be single their whole lives. They're not weird. They're not homosexual. They're they're just uh, equipped of God with a certain form of self-control where their sexual passions are, are different and God has allowed them to be single their whole life. So that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing if God's called someone to that state. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Well, while you're in 1 Corinthians 7, let's go ahead and take this question then. This person would like you to please explain 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 to 17 and what your view is regarding how a believing spouse should respond to an unbelieving spouse who has departed. After a divorce, should the believing spouse continue and keep continuing to reconcile with their spouse? Or should they move on and maybe date or marry another? Any insight or guidance would be most helpful. Well, a little bit later in the same chapter, Paul, uh, after he addresses the unmarried in verses 8 and 9, he says in verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. It's an interesting phrase that he makes because it's uh, in direct uh, contrast to what he's going to say in verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. So here he says to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. But in verse 12, he's going to say to the rest, I say, not the Lord. In other words, this is an issue in verse 10 that Jesus directly taught on during his public ministry. So Paul is saying, I'm not giving any new revelation. I am just echoing what Jesus Christ has already said. When he comes down to verse 12, he's going to say, I say not the Lord, meaning this is not something that Jesus spoke on in his public ministry, but I will speak on as his apostle and with absolute authority. So to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave... Let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband, if it's if the shoe's on the other foot, and the husband should not send his wife away. So here's what Paul uh, teaches specifically concerning some marriage relationships. Sometimes in a marriage, uh, you have a husband or a wife who is an habitual adulterer or a drug addict or a drunkard. Or maybe they are physically abusive to an individual where they, you know, beat their wives up or whatever. Um, Sometimes the problems are so intense that the wisest thing to do is to separate. I didn't say divorce, but to separate. So Paul recognizes that there are times in a marital relationship where that is necessary. Now, I know people take this verse all the time and 
and uh, they say, well, uh, you know, I, I need to separate. Why do you need to separate? Well, my husband abuses me. How does he abuse you? Does he provide for you? Oh, he pays all the bills. Is he good to the kids? Oh, he's good. To, he's a good father. Well, does he, uh, does he, has he ever harmed you physically, beat you? Oh, he's never done that. Has he ever committed adultery on you? No, he's never done that. Well, what's the problem? Well, he abuses me emotionally. Well, how does he abuse you emotionally? Well, he's mean to me sometimes, and he's not understanding, and it's just so traumatic. It's not what I thought. Well, I don't think that's a reason to bail out. You know, there are troubles in this life, and Peter assumes that there will be some troubles and that sometimes even a wife is called to suffer unjustly. He speaks to that issue in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3. He says, you have been called for this purpose. For what purpose? Well, to suffer unjustly, as he just illustrated, with servants who are being harshly treated unfairly by their masters. He said, listen, as he illustrates, if you are... um, you know, if, well, let me read it to you. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Uh, you could even put the same thought in, as we'll see in a moment, for wives. Wives, be submissive to your husbands with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, A man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So he then uh, presents a a question. He said, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? In other words, you're a lousy employee, and because of that, you're reprimanded, or in this case, harshly treated as a slave, and you endure it with patience. What credit is there for that? No credit at all. Because in one sense, uh, you have reaped what you have sown. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it and patiently endure, this finds favor with God. For, he says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. And he left you an example for you to follow. And then he says, think about Messiah. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit ever found in his mouth. And yet the Bible says while he was reviled, while he was insulted, he didn't insult in return. While he was suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. So if there was ever a perfect person in the world, and there was only one, it's the Lord Jesus, who didn't deserve one bit of criticism, one bit of harsh treatment, because everything he did was right and true and holy, um, then he should you know, never have been mistreated, and yet he was. And how did he deal with it? Well, he yielded himself to the Father's will. The Father's will was ultimately that he bear our sin in his own body on the cross, that we could be forgiven. So then when he comes to three one, he says, in the same way, you wives, in the same way as what? In the same way as Christ, who was living rightly yet was mistreated, in the same way, be submissive to your own husband's. So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word. How? By the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste, respectful behavior. So he's assuming that in a marital relationship, sometimes things are not perfect. And you don't say, well, under the banner of emotional abuse, I am bailing out. No, you you deal with it. You submit. You 
uh, act kindly. You return good for evil, and when you do so, you heap burning coals on their heads, and God brings them under conviction and ultimately to a real change. But again, Paul gives a concession that there are times in a marital relationship, and I can think of some where women have been beaten black and blue, where they have a man who's drinking away every paycheck, beating the children, uh, maybe potentially bringing disease into the marital bed through their unfaithfulness, and the wife says, I need to leave, or the husband says, I need to leave. If you're in that situation, what do you do? God is very, very clear, and again, This is consistent with what the Lord taught. Now, you won't find a verse in the Gospels where the Lord Jesus would say, if you're in a troubled marriage, here's what you can do. But Paul is making an application of a biblical principle that Jesus taught in Matthew 10 and in Matthew 19 and Luke 16, 18. And here's the biblical principle. Let me put it before you. He says, for instance, in Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Or in Mark chapter 10, for instance, when the Pharisees question him over the issue of divorce, he says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So in light of that teaching, Paul can make the statement, this is what Jesus taught. If you think your way through it carefully, to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, recognizing that there are times when that's necessary, here are your options. Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So you live like an unmarried person or you go back to your husband. That's what the Bible says your options are period. Why? Because if you remarry, you are doing what displeases Jesus Christ, and it is against his clear biblical counsel in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 16, 18. So when you get down to the nuts and bolts of, well, should I continue to reconcile with my spouse? Yes, you should be praying for reconciliation. It might mean that that's all you can do at this point. They may not even talk to you. They may not even receive an email from you, a card, a note, a letter. But you can pray and you can fast that God could potentially change the situation. Uh, but you, when you go out and you start dating, you shut that door. Uh, you're still married. Uh, even if you're divorced and they divorced against your will, you should still remain Uh, like an unmarried person, or be reconciled to your spouse. That's what the Bible teaches. And we can't mince words and soften it and make it sound better. Uh, And really, there's still an opportunity for reconciliation just as long as someone has not remarried. Now, if your spouse divorces you against your will, and then they go and get remarried, then reconciliation is impossible according to Deuteronomy 24. In fact, ever, ever, ever to go back to that spouse, even if they divorce their second husband or wife, and for you to remarry them is to commit what the Bible calls an abomination, because otherwise you have a legalized form of uh, of adultery. 
So God's word is clear on this, and so you shouldn't be off dating and getting romantically involved, whatever the circumstances are, but you should be praying for reconciliation. That would be God's counsel to you. Great question, an important question for our day when marriage has been cheapened and God's standards have been lowered to uh, adapt to the culture in which we live. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. We've got somebody on the line who's dictating their question. So while we're waiting for that one, we'll go to an email question. Alan from Ocala, Florida, would like to know, uh, he writes, My friend believes in soul sleep and that there will be no rapture of the church. Any scriptures I can use to enlighten him? Well, there's a lot of issues going on in that question. Uh, sometimes when people say, I don't believe in the rapture, what they're saying is, I don't believe in a pre-tribulational or a mid-tribulational or a pre-wrath rapture, uh, and, but they really do. Uh, they believe in a rapture. It's not whether they believe in the rapture. It's whether they believe in, the, uh, in what timing of the rapture. The word rapture is somewhat of a theological word, like the word trinity. It's not a word you're going to find in the word of God. Uh, the word Trinity, but the biblical doctrine that there is one God manifesting himself and three co-equal, co-eternal persons is plainly taught. So the word rapture, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So Paul speaks of a catching up. The Greek word there is harpazo. In the Latin Vulgate translation that Jerome did in the fourth century, he translated harpazo with the word rapto. And so it came into English as rapture. So if you believe that the church will be caught up, you may believe that the catching up of the church in the second coming is one simultaneous event, but you believe in a rapture. It's just an issue of the timing of the rapture. Now, I happen to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because I can't believe otherwise if I'm going to apply a literal hermeneutic to the Bible. If the church is caught up at the same time as the second coming, if God's people are caught up off the earth, the dead in Christ are raised, and those who are alive are taken off the earth and and a twinkling of an eye transformed into resurrected bodies, and we're caught up in the air, and then we make a U-turn to the earth, again applying a literal hermeneutic that Jesus will literally reign upon the earth for a thousand years, then the scenario at the end of that thousand years becomes a total impossibility. That is when Revelation 20 and verse 10 says, And the devil who is deceived was thrown into the lake of fire. But just before he is thrown into that lake of fire, the Bible says when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So the devil at the end of the thousand years is going to deceive the nations of this world and try to lure them against God's Messiah. If you cannot sin in your resurrected body, and that's the plain teaching of Scripture, and no one disputes that, then there's really no one to tempt. So who is it that the devil is tempting? The only people he can tempt are tribulation saints, and that presupposes that church saints have already been caught up. So here is how I think it will unfold. The church will be caught up. 
the tribulation period will unfold, that seven-year time upon the earth. Most believers will lose their lives during the great tribulation because they refuse to take the mark of the beast. They are beheaded, the Bible says. That's the choice of execution that the Antichrist will institute. You don't want to take my mark on your forehead? Then I'll take your head off. Very simple. Um, And those who survive the tribulation period will enter the millennial reign in their natural bodies. Uh, Their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will have to make a decision for Christ, just like my children and grandchildren have to make a decision for Christ. They're not automatically Christians because I am. And those who have not made a decision uh, will, at the end of that thousand years, be lured by the evil one to go against God's Messiah. So it demands a pre-tribulational rapture unless you did what Calvin did. Calvin said, well, there is no millennial reign. He took the concept of a thousand years and just spiritualized it and said, well, this is a number of fullness. And so he he made the second coming of Christ and the rapture all one event. And when that event took place, we immediately go into the eternal state with the new heaven and the new earth. He was forced to do that because he couldn't literally apply the... uh, the prophecies that related to a literal thousand-year kingdom. Why couldn't he do that? Well, number one, because in his theology, the church had become the new Israel, the millennial reign of Messiah in the Old Testament. In his mind, was lost because Israel was disobedient. He saw the covenant that God made as conditional in nature, and therefore the church has usurped Israel's place and uh, now ruling and reigning instead of uh, Old Testament national Israel. I think he was wrong, uh, but if you take a literal hermeneutic and there's no reason to interpret the scripture otherwise, because every single prophecy concerning the first coming of Christ was literally fulfilled, why would we expect the prophecies for the second coming to be fulfilled any differently? Uh, Soul sleep, uh, that's something that Adventists have taught, for instance, in other groups in the course of church history. Soul sleep says that when you die, your body, soul, and spirit sleep in the grave, awaiting the return of Christ. I don't think so. Paul says we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. When Paul is speaking here of sleep, contextually, it's very clear that he's not speaking of the soul or the spiritual aspect of man, but of the body. We don't want you to be ignorant about those who are dead, the NIV renders it, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Why do we not have to grieve like pagans? He tells us, because or for, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, it's a first-class conditional statement in Greek, meaning we do believe that, just like... um. When Satan said, if you are the son of God, turn these uh, stones into loaves of bread, Satan was not questioning whether or not uh, Jesus was God in human flesh. He was affirming it. Uh, That was not a temptation that any normal man could uh, be persuaded with. Only the divine man, the God man, could be presented with such a temptation. I have no power to turn stones into loaves of bread, but Christ did because he's God in human flesh. So again, it's the first class conditional statement. The if statements in the Bible, there are four conditional statements that are made in the Greek New Testament. 
And so Paul is saying, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's what we all believe as Christians, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. How is he going to bring with him from heaven those whose bodies have fallen asleep in the grave? Because as 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 8 teaches, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Bible's crystal clear that at the moment of physical death, your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. And by the way, the corollary is true. To be absent from the body for the unbeliever is to be present in Hades. That's why Revelation 20 and 11 and 15 speaks about how death, the place of the grave where the body is in Hades, are going to be drawn up of the great white throne judgment. Because when an unbeliever dies, he goes to a place called Hades, which ultimately is cast into the lake of fire. Paul made it very clear in his letter to the church at at Philippi when he spoke of, of future things and things that we could look forward to. He says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How so, Paul? How is death a gain for the believer? It's a gain for the believer if we get more of what we enjoy here, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, Philippians 1.23 says, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh in this body alive, well, that's more necessary for your sake. So Paul says, listen, you know, I'm, I'm hard-pressed on the one hand. I'd love to go home and be with the Lord. I mean, who wouldn't when you really think about how wonderful heaven is? But on the other hand, he says, if God wants me to serve you Philippians, that's going to be beneficial for you, and that's what I need to do. So, again, the Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. It teaches the spirit inside of the human body immediately goes home to be with the Lord. Now, some Christians have falsely said, and I hear it all the time, almost at every funeral I uh, preach, they'll say, oh, he's up in heaven now, he's out of pain, and he's just dancing in his resurrected body in heaven. No, he's not. He's not in his resurrected body yet. That's still in the future. When you die, the immaterial portion of you The person in this human space suit goes home to be with Jesus. Now, it appears from the revelation that we're given some kind of intermediate body. I mean, the tribulation saints who were martyred during the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation that are pictured in the revelation are wearing robes. Um, I don't know what you hang them on, but you got to hang them on something. So much like Samuel, who is brought up from... Sheol, and he is in some kind of spirit-recognized body, but still, that's not the resurrected body. That's not the the body that is made in conformity to Christ's image. That's still in the future. We're looking forward to that, and the Bible is very clear that that body is not given until Jesus comes back with his saints and for his saints. So anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And uh, you can also email us at tbl at net. And we did have that uh, last caller dictate their question. They would like to know if in the Bible, Jewish people who converted to Christianity circumcised their sons uh, that were born after the parents' conversion. 
Well, it's a really good question. The Bible doesn't specifically address that in terms of, say, first century believers who found Christ as Savior and Lord, but understand it was part of Jewish tradition in that the outward sign of the covenant that a family made with God was that their young boys on the eighth day would be circumcised. And I have a whole sermon on circumcision if you really want to study it and uh, think your way through it and why God gave this bloody little rite. But nonetheless, um, when the church was born, there were some teachers, they were called Judaizers, whom Paul really dubbed as false teachers preaching another gospel, which is really, he says in Galatians 1, not another gospel because there's only one good news. And those Judaizers said that for a person to believe in Jesus Christ, they had to come first through the vestibule of Judaism. They had to first be converted to Judaism before they could believe in Christ. And Paul's argument in Galatians is that that is basically saying that the cross of Christ is not enough, that circumcision is necessary, that that makes the grace of God uh, really insufficient to save, and man now has to bring some work to the Lord. Now, I suspect that Jewish families probably continued to circumcise their sons uh, after they had believed in Christ, just because it was a tradition that continued. In, in America, most young men, when they're born, are circumcised. And that tradition carries on. You go to Eastern Europe, none of the men are circumcised. Uh, so, you know, there are some things that become traditions and some other reasons are given sometimes for performing that little rite on a boy. Uh, but is it necessary to salvation? No. Does a true Jew believe uh, that it is necessary for salvation? Absolutely not. Because a true Jew, Paul says in Romans two twenty eight and 29, is one who has not had circumcision of the body, but circumcision of the heart. And so if a Jewish person has been truly converted to faith in Jesus as their Messiah, they will not in any way, shape, or form make uh, circumcision a requirement uh, for salvation or as a test of spirituality or anything like that. And if they do, then they're wrong. Uh, They would be wrong in that under those circumstances. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, our next uh, listener is in Madison, Wisconsin, and they email their question. His name is John and would like to know, what rights do animals have? Is it wrong to hunt for trophy bucks? That's a first, I think. I don't think we've had that question before. before, Um, You know, hunting, there's not a whole lot in the Bible on hunting, but there is a passage that comes to mind. It's in the... um, book of Proverbs. Um, In the book of Proverbs, it says, a slothful man does not roast his prey. Um, I I can't remember exactly how the King James, I only have my Bible in front of me. Can you pull up the King James Bible on your computer? Mm -hmm. I only bring a Bible into the Bible line, but Rick's got a computer over near him. Pull up uh, Proverbs 12, 27. If I remember correctly, the King James uses the word hunt instead of prey, which uh, in the English Bible, I think would be the only place 
where the word hun or hunting is mentioned. But I don't want to tell them wrong here. Uh, Proverbs 12, 27. Uh, but again, that's the thought here in terms of praise, something that you catch. And you certainly could translate the Hebrew word hunt. In the New American Standard, it says a slothful man does not roast his prey, but the precious possession of a man is diligence. In the King James, read it for me, Rick. Okay, it says the slothful man roasteth not that which he took in hunting, but the okay. substance of a diligent man is so, precious. So they do use the word hunting. Now, you know, we, we live in a day where hunting really, especially in the American culture, takes a different context. You know, you lived in the first century, you either grew your food, you hunted for your food, you bought your food, you bartered for your food. Um, it was necessary to survive. You, you know, hunting was not kind of a sporting event like it is today for many uh, marksmen who enjoy hunting, shooting a rifle, shooting a shotgun, pistol, working a bow and arrow, whatever. It, but it was not a survival issue. It was if you live back in, in biblical days. Uh, is, is God against hunting? Obviously not, because he gives uh, freedom for it. In fact, he uses it as an illustration. God never uses an illustration that has error in it. Uh, God doesn't teach truth with error. So God allows hunting to be permissible, and so he uses it as an illustration that, you know, the lazy guy, he, do, he doesn't even take time to cook his meat the way it should be cooked. He's just uh, lazy, and he just gobbles it down. Um, not so with uh, the prudent man. So God's not against hunting. In fact, the Bible is very clear that God gave man uh, uh, a charge or authority over the creation. Uh, God in Genesis 1, let me turn there for just a moment to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1, uh, in, let's see, it's in verse uh, 28. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God gave man authority over the creation. Uh, animals are not on the same level as people are, as organizations like PETA would say. That, that's not true. Man is above the animal realm. Uh, the first death in the universe takes place in Genesis 3 when God kills an animal. And so God institutes uh, the need for the shedding of blood to teach a principle that's going to flow all the way through the Old Testament pages that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And then when you come to Genesis 9, uh, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. So here God expands the diet of man when they come off of the ark. And he says, listen, you can not only eat the green plant, but you can also eat the animals as well. And God gives permission for man to eat meat. And again, even in Acts 10, when God gives Peter that magnificent vision of the sheet that 
comes down from having it, it has not only clean but unclean animals. And Peter says, well, I can't eat those unclean things as a Jew. And God says, no, you can. And he's not teaching just about uh, what is now permissible in a man's diet, but what his attitude should be, the posture he should have towards people who are non-Jewish, namely Gentiles that he's not to discriminate. But again, God never teaches truth using error. And so my Seventh-day Adventist friends who argue for vegetarianism at the most or at the least uh, arguing that we shouldn't eat the unclean animals that God specified in the Old Testament, they're just wrong because they're misinterpreting the Scripture. But God gave man permission to eat meat. He doesn't restrict the kinds of meat that he should eat until the Mosaic Law when he classifies certain animals as clean and other animals as unclean. And that was part of how God distinguished the Jewish people in ancient times. They were distinguished more externally where under the new covenant, we are distinguished internally through the abiding spirit who lives within each and every child of God. So when you think about uh, animals, God gives permission to hunt here in Proverbs, uh, which I think you could extend that to say, well, God gives permission since we rule over the animal creation to to use them for research. A lot of animals are used in cancer research and other things to, uh, you know, use in the development of drugs and so forth. I, I, I think that we should be careful of the environment. I'm not a tree hugger, but neither do I, when I change my oil, do I pour it into the marsh. Uh, I, I think I should be a good steward of the creation that God put around me. Uh, I don't believe I should take my trash and throw it out the window when I'm driving down the highway. Uh, I think it's a sin to litter. Uh, God calls me to rule over the creation, but neither do I put my hope in the creation. I know that someday God's going to burn the whole planet with fire. But with that said, I think I have a responsibility as a Christian to care for the creation. God gave Adam uh, the need to uh, maintain the creation around him, to care and cultivate it. So if animals are coming into some extinct status, I don't as a hunter go out and say, man, I'd like to go shoot that animal when, you know, that would be selfish if it's not preserved, say, for the next generation, should the Lord tarry. Neither for that matter should I be cruel to animals. In fact, in the same chapter, see, it's in uh, Proverbs 12.10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his beast, but the compassion of the wicked is cruel. So God says that we shouldn't be cruel to animals. Uh, Being cruel to an animal is the mark of a wicked man, God says. And the mark of a righteous man, among other things, is that he has compassion for the life of his beast. Um, So getting back to your trophy hunting here, you know, uh, there's not a direct command in Scripture about sport hunting Because, again, in the historical context of the Bible, hunting was done to survive. So God gives permission for you to go and shoot and kill and eat, certainly. And personally, I I, I don't like to kill an animal if I'm not going to eat the animal. So I'm going to hunt a deer. I'm not going to shoot the deer unless I'm going to eat the deer or give it to some person who will eat it for me. And uh, there's a lot of great deer hunting ministries where they'll shoot deer and then give the food to single moms and poor folks and 
and it's a it, it's a it's a huge supplement many times to uh, the needs that they have uh, as a family. So uh, with that said, is it ever wrong to shoot a, a trophy buck? Well, certainly I think you could say definitively that it would not be wrong, assuming you're going to eat that buck that before you mount it. I think you could say that with absolute authority and no one could question you. Uh, you might be able to build a case that, hey, look, there's some animal controls that we need to put on because if we don't, uh, if we don't control the animals, then they're going to be overpopulated. You know, we go to, uh, we've been to Fripp Island a number of times, and Fripp Island is a great place to to go to the beach, but it's a sad place too. Um, it's a sad place as well if uh, you can't, uh, you know, if you, when you see all these animals and you can't, uh, you know, you, they're sickly, they're they're death-stricken, uh, they've got tumors on the outside of their bodies. I mean, it's just sad. Uh, and I don't know, again, the genesis behind all that. I, I know you can't hunt them on that island, and I'm not saying that you should. It's pretty populated island at this point that it might not be wise to. But you talk about an example of overpopulation. That's a classic example where you have all these scrawny deer. It's just sad. Uh, the, the place needs to be thinned out. And I'm not sure the best solution in terms of how to do that, but uh, it's not wrong to kill an animal. People say, oh, you know, poor animal, poor deer. How can you be so cruel? And as they bite into their hamburger, I say, oh, poor cow. You know, how how could they be so cruel that... Um, you know, they would eat, they would eat a cow. Um, put me on the internet if you would. I want to pull something up. All right. Great. Uh, that, that, that's it for uh, that question. I hope that helps. And we're going to leave the air today. I've got to go do something right now, but we're glad you can join us today for the Bible line. God bless you. And you have a great day. the hand.
entrance to the faithful gathered underground. Of all the songs sung from the dawn of creation, some were meant to persist. Of all the bells rung from a thousand steeples, none rings truer than this. Face away. 
as wounds which mar the chosen one. Bring many sons to Take heart, my friend. We'll go together this uncertain road that lies ahead. Our faithful God has always gone before us, and He will lead the way once again. Take heart, my friend. Our 
Programming on the Light 88.7 FM is brought to you by Drs. Tristan and Angela Greenwald at Ladies Island Dental. At Ladies Island Dental, special attention is given to your comfort and peace of mind. Patients receive state-of-the-art dental care in a gentle and caring environment. Their goal is to help you maintain healthy teeth for life. Ladies Island Dental, where all new patients receive complimentary exams and x-rays. They can be reached at 521-0808 or on the web at ladiesislanddental.com. The Light 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church. On the web at wagp.net.